Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. It's a pleasure to welcome you here today to a special discussion which is going to focus on the current scandals swirling around the intelligence that we have received uh, and that the president has apparently received and done nothing about concerning um, uh, Russian efforts to offer a bounty to the Taliban on U.S. and allied forces in Afghanistan. We have a very distinguished panel to uh, join us for this discussion. Uh, We welcome a friend, uh, General Mark Hurtling, who uh, uh, for times served as the commander of the U.S. Army in Europe and has had a long and distinguished career in the U.S. military. How are you, Mark? Fine, thank you. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. Also joining us, we have Brett McGurk, who served as a special uh, envoy from this administration covering issues associated with ISIL. He has served in senior capacities in the State Department, the National Security Council, uh, in past administrations. Uh, going back to the one that I served in, in the Clinton administration. Hi, Brett. David, great to be here. Thank you for joining us. And we have our friend Mika Oyang, who is the Vice President for National Security at Third Way. Hi, Mika. Hello. It's lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you as well. Glad we have moved on to the Zoom era. Uh, and of course, it's lovely for all of you to see our uh, regular Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman, who is the co-editor of Just Security, a professor at NYU Law School, um, and our friend Ryan is out there somewhere in Long Island. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. Uh, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to, because I know all of you have been given some thought to this issue, uh, just get your reactions to what it means, what it amounts to, what it says to you um, about the state of national security in the United States. Uh, and we'll go to each one of you for two or three minutes. Ryan, I'll have some questions, and then we'll open it up to a uh, discussion. Uh, Mark, since you served in that part of the world, uh, and since you have spent your life as a United States member of the United States military, uh, I imagine hearing that someone has placed a bounty on the heads of U.S. and allied troops and that the United States government apparently or the United States president, in any event, did nothing about it and actually sought to reward those who had placed that bounty, must be a personal issue. So what's your reaction? Well, it is personal to me. Uh, I, and, and frankly, it reeks of a very poor process uh, within the strategic level of our government. Uh, you know, there have been repeated intelligence reports about the potential for Russia to insert themselves into northern Afghanistan. They've inserted themselves into other areas primarily to disrupt our actions, to make us, the United States, look bad. Um, now, I, I'm as, not as concerned 
from a tactical or an operational level. Because when the forces on the ground gained this intelligence, they adjusted and adapted their tactics and, and operations. Uh, but there's always a reliance from the tactical commander's view that their higher headquarters are actually having their backs in many things. And, and what I would say is, it, it reminded me, when I first heard it, it reminded me of, of when I was first taking a division into northern Iraq. Uh, my four-star boss came to me and said, hey, Mark, fight your fight, and I'll contribute to fighting the fight that supports you. Now, that was at the grand strategic level. But you would also hope that people in, that are elected officials would also be covering your back with the kinds of things that only they can do, that the operational level commanders can't do. So it's, it's discouraging to me to see that this seemingly wasn't ignored from an intelligence perspective and the kinds of things that can occur at strategic level didn't happen. Okay, Brett, you've been involved in every corner of that part of the world, including having responsibility for looking at U.S. activities in Afghanistan. Um, what's your reaction? Well, I just I see this incredible um, story as a microcosm for the fact that we do not have a federal government. And it's not just that this was in the PDB and the president apparently says he wasn't aware of it. Around the same time, you know, COVID was in the PDB in January and February, 12 times, according to the Washington Post. And the president at the time was dismissive of it and saying, I just talked to Xi Jinping. They got it all under control. So this is a president that doesn't read intelligence and is failing in his first duty to keep us safe. Um, it's also just a microcosm of a total breakdown, just to follow what Mark is saying, process. I cannot imagine um, if you're the national security advisor if you're just a senior director of the NSC, like I have been, when you read your intelligence in the morning, you ask yourself three questions, right? What do I know from reading this and who needs to know it? And have I told them? And it is inconceivable that if you read a piece of intelligence, even at moderate confidence, frankly, even at low confidence, that Russia may have changed a policy to put bounties on the targets of Americans, that would be flagged for the president. Why? Because that's not just an operational piece of information. That's not information saying the Taliban might have an operation to target us. That's a piece of information saying a great power has made a decision to target our soldiers. And the president is on the phone with the head of state of that power. So for him to be talking to Putin five or six times and for this never have been flagged to him is totally inconceivable and just shows such a breakdown in our national security process and it just begs the question, what else is in the intelligence that is not getting to the president, that is not being considered? And so why haven't we seen, for example, the, the DNI's uh, worldwide threat assessment, which for the first time in history is being kept from the Congress and the American people? So I think it's one story, a part of a broader mosaic uh, for why our country is in such crisis. Of course, the president says he didn't see it, but he has said in the past he didn't see things which we know he saw. And we also know that in some circumstances, he's seen reports from the United States intelligence community that he has dismissed because he personally didn't believe them or because Vladimir Putin said not to believe him. Mika, how do you look at all this? Yeah, I, I agree with Brett that this is a, a piece that is so enlightening about what is happening at the top in the dysfunction in our government. And what it says to me, you know, having been a staffer, you learn to pay attention to and flag the things that your principal cares about. 
and you learn what their instincts are and what they want to take action on and what they don't. And that the president says he didn't see this or that it wasn't presented to him or did he see it? It was in there and he didn't read it. At the end of the day, what it means is the president was fundamentally uninterested in threats against our troops or threats to the health and safety and lives of the American people in the case of coronavirus, as Brett has, has noted in the PDB on that, but that he's not looking out for these things. That when this kind of intelligence comes along that represents a strategic choice by a foreign power to come at Americans directly, not just furthering their own ends in the region, um, that the president's not interested in that and his aides don't think he's going to want to care about this. We have to mention this to him and make sure that he sees it. Um, it is actually terrifying about what it says about what the president's gut priorities are in the protection of the United States. So, Ryan, um, everybody here is being very, uh, I, I think, uh, thoughtful in their commentary. And as you know from doing this show every week, I'm sometimes less thoughtful. Uh, and so when I hear people say the president uh, is not interested, I also want to flag the possibility that the president is interested in not being interested. In other words, the president has made a conscious choice here. So first, your reaction to that, Ryan, and then perhaps you could kick off your own round to these folks. Sure. So I think just to react to that in particular, I, I do worry that what the current, what, what are we, what's the current situation that we're in right now? Because a lot of this is a look back at what the president knew in February 2020, what he might have known in 2019, and how he acted in that period. But we now are in a situation where it's not just that we know about the Russian operation, but the Russians know that we know about their operation, and how is the president responding? Um, and I think that's what's deeply worrisome, because the president is already saying, not just that the intelligence is mixed, but it's a hoax. And just to add, Another implication to that is in this in a status quo, do we know that this operation is over, right? If indeed the U United States government briefed NATO and the British forces just last week, and according to NATO military intelligence officials, the briefing was for them to take into account force protection, that means it's, a, it's an ongoing threat. So there's an ongoing threat to US forces, coalition forces, and the President of the United States is calling the intelligence a hoax, which is also signaling to staffers and the like, he doesn't need to hear it. Um, it's a decision that it's not, he's not gonna take in that information. So I think that's a piece of it that I'm kind of eschewing in my mind about where we're at in the moment. Um, so I guess that might be a good segue into a, a round of questions. And I, uh, just to turn to you, Mark, one thought I've had is that we should now be looking to what the reaction is in Europe um, and among the European militaries and especially the UK, NATO, now that they do also have this information, now that their political leaders acting rationally would wanna look after the interests of their troops. Is, do you think that there, there are certain kinds of signs that we should look for that would be further indications about how significant the intelligence is? I'd, I'd, I'd say there certainly are uh, a lot of signs that you could look for, <clears throat> but going back to your point, uh, the question I would have is, who did bring, brief the NATO commanders? Who did brief NATO? Uh, was it a, a, a strategic level of government, the president, the secretary of state, 
uh, through the ambassador at NATO, ambassador at EU? That, that's a key question. Or was this something that was left within the military chain of command? And, and my bet would be on the latter. Uh, you know, as, as these kind of intelligence features bubble up in, in commander's black books, not, not PDBs, I mean, that's kept at the strategic level in Washington, D.C., but every morning when I got a black book, it wasn't only just to inform me, but it was to help me direct my staff to do things and to share information with other commanders. And, and I would bet that the commanders in Afghanistan, whether it was Mick Nicholson or General Miller or whoever, uh, skyrocketed that thing up the chain of command into the NATO command structure because it is part of the of, of what's going on in Afghanistan. So uh, to, to, to drive that point home, I think there is still a very high confidence level in the partnerships, the military partnerships within Europe. Uh, but at the same time, from my understanding and talking to some of my colleagues, they have lost great confidence, any kind of confidence in, in the State Department, in the strategic elements of sharing information. I don't know if that's 100% factual, but I would, I would bet a month's pay that it is. Um, and Brett, one of the pieces that I thought would be interesting to, you talk, to hear you talk about is where you think the failure might exist um, within the um, intelligence community, national security apparatus within the government, if indeed the president wasn't briefed um, on this. And by being briefed on this, meaning they maybe followed up with an oral briefing. And to me, one of the most remarkable things in the last 24, 48 hours is the National Security Advisor, uh, Robert O'Brien, saying on C-SPAN in an interview at, outside the White House and then on Fox News and Friends that it was a decision on the part of the briefer <laughs> to not tell the president and that he, uh, Mr. O'Brien, supports her in having made that decision. But by saying it in those ways, he's actually throwing her, I think, into the spotlight as though this was her call and he's being supportive. In the way in which I read what or interpreted what he said to Fox News and Friend was almost as though it was his support for her after the fact, that he wasn't even necessarily involved ex ante in that choice as to whether or not to brief the president. If, if the president wasn't fully and adequately briefed, the big question, I guess, is where does the responsibility for something like that lie? Well, first, the responsibility lies with the president because the president uh, has to set the tone and the climate that he wants all hard, truthful information coming into the Oval. I mean, that, that's just a fundamental test of leadership. Um, you know, I served in a sec I was on the NSC in the second, the second four years of the Bush administration, um, in which President Bush in the, that second term very much did send that message. He wanted... Uh, one reason you walk in the Oval, he'd make you feel very much at ease is because he wanted a, just a kind of a conversation. And when Josh Bolton was the chief of staff and I was briefing the president regularly in the morning, I said, Josh, you have any, any advice here? And he said, yeah, it's easy. Tell the president the truth in five minutes every morning. <laughs> so, you know, that has to be the climate. And um, President Obama was clearly uh, that way. He wanted uh, kind of an Eisenhower, lay all the facts out cold and hard type model. Um, Trump, does not set that tone clearly. So I don't want to, you know, blame others. It really is him. However, um, and I know Robert, and so, but um, I, I saw his explanation. I just don't, I, I don't find it plausible. Um, so the briefer apparently briefed uh, the president in a PDB 
February, March, whatever the time frame was, and for whatever reason, she did not you know, orally highlight this piece. Um, that does not dismiss any of this because it is the president's daily brief. It's in his brief. Um, the intelligence community has determined this has to be in the president's brief. That briefing is seen by uh, the senior leaders of the National Security Council. So just that explanation alone doesn't fly. Um, secondly, there's then a series of presidential phone calls between uh, Trump and Putin. And it's the job of the NSC to brief and prepare the president for those calls. So this went on for months. And the fact that in the preparation for those calls, nobody said, hey, boss, uh, Mr. President, when you're talking to Putin and you're yucking it up here, you might just keep in mind that we're running down some information that uh, he might be putting bounties on our troops in Afghanistan. It's inconceivable to me that that never happened while all these calls are going on, while Trump is in inviting Putin back to the G7, while we're withdrawing a third of our forces from Germany without telling the Germans or allies, while we're informing our allies of this information about threats to their forces mm. uh, as coalition partners in Afghanistan. And this is such a total breakdown. So just to answer your question, the blame rests at the top, but this is just a systemic uh, failure at just multiple levels and begs the question to what else is in the intel, what threats are coming our way that are not being handled. By the way, before you get on to the question for Mika, I want to say two things. One, and this is just for the benefit of the listeners who may be listening kind of casually, Brett referred to Josh Bolton, excellent, excellent, <laughs> excellent White House chief of staff, very good guy, real public servant, not John Bolton. And uh, when Brett talked about all these phone calls, there were seven phone calls between the February 27th appearance of this and the PDB and now with the president and Putin, according to the White House. Those are the ones we know about. So there's an almost constant dialogue going on with Putin through this period. Sorry to interrupt. Just footnote. David, I just had one thing, just, just 30 seconds. You know, and when you're talking to Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin or Erdogan, and I've prepared a lot of these calls, I've been on a lot of these types of calls, uh, leaders like that are not spending their time uh, watching Fox News or on Twitter or playing golf. They are spending their time thinking about their next engagements and how to advance the interests of their country as they see, it, as they see them, um, oftentimes which is very hostile to our interests. So the fact that we have a president that just goes into these calls totally unprepared, and we've seen this before now, it's going on three years, we know this story, but this, that's why this little piece of information is so critical that this information is in the system and nobody found it in their job description to make sure that Trump knew about this while he is about to get on or before he's about to get on the phone with President Putin. Un unbelievable. Okay, Ryan, back to you and Tamika. So Tamika, I just wanted to kind of shine a light on Congress um, and get you to talk about where, what you think the congressional action on this will look like, um, both from a perspective of oversight and potentially legislation. So even you know, things that are being proposed on a bipartisan basis to uh, deal with Russia if indeed uh, Congress believes that the intelligence is uh, sufficient. And is this in fact also like a real bipartisan moment uh, for the country given what you've already, we've seen in the last few days uh, about Republicans uh, speaking out. Yeah, I actually think the most interesting thing um, in, in the congressional reaction here has been um, that the congressional Republicans have not 
leapt to the president's defense the same way as they have in some other national security issues. And you saw Liz Cheney really criticizing the president, coming out strongly in support of the safety of U.S. troops and working with Democrats on a number of things, including um, what are we doing about the withdrawal of troops in Afghanistan and in Europe, um, that we may be seeing the beginnings of sort of a reassertion of a um, post-Trump Republican ethos that is starting to gel now. Um, and I think that right the, the bipartisan concern for the safety of the troops and our national security is still in there. It's still a concern for the members. I do think it's hard for them to determine what to do here. And I think that they want to be careful to make sure that they're getting all the information about what's going on. Um, attribution can be difficult in terms of understanding sort of how this translates into, you know, outside of Afghanistan into what's really going on inside Russia um, and who's making these decisions and who is culpable in terms of questions about imposing sanctions or things like that. Um, I think that they want to have some certainty about this. But what you do see is uh, congressional bipartisan concern when, when a nation state is targeting American troops. And you saw that in a bipartisan concern from members of Congress when there were, um, when we saw intelligence suggesting that Iran was funding proxies to go at U.S. troops in Iraq. Um, and I think you, you see that people don't want to see Russia any differently if they are saying to people, go out there and target Americans. Um, so I, I think the congressional political response on this is, is interesting. And this is actually one of the places where Trump has run into trouble with his caucus in the past. Um, at the beginning of this coronavirus scandal um, with the USS Teddy Roosevelt um, and the administration's handling of the port call in Vietnam and what to do about Captain Crozier um, and the Secretary of the Navy getting, or the Acting Secretary of the Navy getting removed um, and a number of other places where the president going against the uniform military has caused some tension between him and what should otherwise be his political allies. Okay, let me ask each of you a, a question, a, a slightly different question for each of you. Um, Mark, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that there's been a lot of focus on the fact that since the president learned about this, uh, since it appeared in the PDB in February, among the things the president has put forth is the idea that uh, Russia come to uh, the G7 meeting, that Russia be readmitted into a G8, um, uh, that he was actually seeking to reward Russia in the context of this while penalizing him in no way. But something else occurred during the past couple of months, and that is there was a discussion about pulling U.S. troops out of Germany, which is directly relevant to the Russians, possibly, you know, would have been at the top of their wish list right after the dissolution of NATO, which is something else the president has been working on. And I know you've given a lot of thought to that, and I, and I just thought it might be useful if you could take that and put it into the context of this broader discussion. It, it, you know, I'm a little bit biased in, in terms of forces in Europe. Uh, the last 10 years of my career in the military from 2003 until 2013 
when I wasn't in Iraq, I was in Germany. Uh, this was also during the time when decisions were made to further reduce the size of the force, first by, in Europe, first by uh, uh, the Bush administration, and then it was continued under President Obama. Uh, in both of those cases, our messaging uh, was just, it was draconian in terms of being tight. The plans were coordinated with our European allies. Congress was involved to the nth degree. When I was the commander in Europe and from 10 to, to 13, uh, I was in Washington at least once a month talking about what was next in terms of how we were doing it. And it's a very difficult um, uh, coordinating process, first of all. But secondly, part of the reason it's so challenging is because of the message it sends not only to our European allies, but to Russia and how they see it. So when uh, President Trump announced seemingly out of the clear blue, even though he's said it several times that he's interested in doing this, but when he announced the 9,500 uh, reduction, force reduction in Europe, I think it took, first of all, it took me by surprise. I know it took uh, the military in Europe by complete surprise. It took many, it took almost all of our allies and the Germans by surprise, and it will be a devastating blow to NATO. Beyond that, it is a strategic in, uh, mistake from this. And again, I'm citing my opinion, but showing what I saw the last time we pulled forces out, because it, the forces in Europe are no longer defending Germany, as Trump, Mr. Trump said. Uh, they are the, the whole discussion about what nations contribute to NATO is farcical uh, for anyone who understands how the NATO budget objectives were made. But what it does do is it gives a gift-wrapped present to Mr. Putin. This is something that he sees in his wildest dream because it will allow him to continue to put a wedge between the U.S. and the European allies. It will continue to show that we are not living up to our strategic uh, our strategic <laughs> coordinated uh, uh, messages, the information flow is terrible. And, I, and I'd add to that, too, that this was at the same time he was dismantling all the information capabilities within Europe, such as Voice of America and others. So you, you're talking about uh, the dynamic where every element of national power, the diplomatic, the economic, the informational, and now the military has been affected to the advantage of Mr. Putin in Russia. So from all of that perspective, I will say that it is a huge strategic mistake in my view. And uh, the fact that it was at the same time all this was going on, I would hope a lot of Americans and members of Congress would really start connecting the dots on what has been happening. Well, it's a point that the Speaker of the House has made, uh, Brett. It's a point that journalists have made. It's a point I think that all of us have made uh, that you know this is not a breakdown of process. This is part of a pattern that begins prior to the election with regard to the president's relationship with Russia. Uh, they, they have attacked us uh, in terms of disinformation. They've cyber attacked us. They're, they're now in the, in the midst of underwriting uh, direct physical attacks on our troops. And yet, in issue after issue after issue, uh, Donald Trump has rewarded them, whether it's defending them for their intervention in the 2016 election or whether it's 
um, uh, uh, you know, giving them leeway in a place like Syria that you know very well, or whether it's what what Mark was just talking about. Um, and another area where he has effectively rewarded them is he sent a message to his guys who he put in charge of the intelligence community, just like he put his guy in charge of those, the Voice of America and so forth. And, and, and what he said to Grinnell and what he said to Radcliffe clearly is, you know, I don't want the Mueller stuff. I don't want this stuff to come back and haunt me. I don't want this Russia stuff. And, you know, during the period that that was his message, this bubbled up and we saw it brushed aside. Do you see a connection there? Is Have we gotten to the point where the leadership of the intelligence committee, of the intelligence community is suspect in this regard? They didn't even inform the Gang of Eight and the Congress, which they're supposed to do uh, in circumstances like this. It's, it really seems to me one of the largest sort of breakdowns in the functioning of that community since 9-11. Well, I think, David, you're right. And, and I mean, and don't take it from me, um, Joe McGuire, who was the president's DNI when he came out, wrote an op-ed with a number of other former top intelligence officials saying the president is putting us at risk by hollowing out the intelligence community, by... Uh, creating this climate of, of not telling the truth. Um, I mean, that's a very important op-ed. It came out a few months ago. That's from the president's former DNI. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to, and to use Fiona Hill's words, again, a former colleague of mine, I mean, a lot of times you look at what these guys are doing, it seems like they're more on a political errand to protect the president than focused on uh, protecting the country. And what Mark, what Mark just said is just, extraordinary, and it, it directly dovetails with what I experienced in the Trump administration very directly and personally. Um, a major strategic decision. We're going to reduce a third of our forces from Germany. And the fact that the U.S. military doesn't know, our command doesn't know, our command in Europe doesn't know, our allies don't know, I mean, this is just completely crazy. And what, you, what happens when this happens, and I, I lived through this, president makes a crazy decision, right? And then everybody scrambles to try to package it up to make it look a little less crazy. So I, I, I read with interest Esper's statement explaining this yesterday. He said, we just met with the president. It's true. We're withdrawing a third of our forces and we're going to do it in a way that kind of stands up to Russia. Okay, well, let's see. Maybe they're going to deploy them somewhere else, but they're trying to repackage this craziness. And this is what it is like every day in the Trump administration. Um, but again, these microcosms, this is nuts to make a decision like that. No consultation with allies, no consultation with your own military command. Um, and then everybody tries to scramble to make sense of it. And to your point, it's the same thing as in the intelligence community. Every single institution is being eroded and degraded week by week, month by month. Um, I've said on another, on television this week, you know, our country I think because of the leadership, the, the lack of leadership, we are in the middle of a public health catastrophe. Um, it is just unbelievably uh, horrific to look out your window and see what is happening in our country uh, with COVID because of the lack of planning, lack of leadership. We're in the middle of an economic catastrophe. We're in the middle of a racial justice crisis. And the one thing we don't have is an international security crisis. But there are seven months at least here of the Trump administration 
Uh, we have very disciplined and patient allies from nation states to non-state actors. And I would not be surprised if an international security crisis is coming. And this administration is totally ill-equipped to handle it. And everything we're seeing just kind of points to that. But that is kind of one of my main uh, fears right now. We're still only halfway through this, this year, 2020, and um, we don't know what the second half is bringing. Yeah, I would suggest, by the way, sometimes crises look like wars. Sometimes they look like famine or plague. Sometimes crises are silent, and the collapse of the international order and the gutting of the institutions that have sustained international peace for 75 years is an international crisis. It's just That's a well, silent I agree. Yes. So yeah. Can I add to what Brett just said? Because I think okay. you know, that's been something that's been of my concern, especially tracking the areas of the world where crisis might occur. Looking at the Council of Foreign Relations, what they said the top 20 potentials were for, for 2020 and those kinds of things. What concerns me more than most, especially in Europe, is it may not be an attack or some type of, of opposition to us an extreme opposition, but it certainly could be a test of us with an attack by Russia against one of the nations that have been our allies for the last either 20, 30, or 50 years. That's what concerns me the most, that we won't do anything about it, even though there are uh, treaties that say we will. Uh, and, and that will further degrade our reputation on the world stage if that in fact does occur. Okay, let me go to one more question here for Mika, and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Um, Mika, uh, I want you to help Vice President Biden here. Um, uh, I, I was listening uh, on television today to an advisor to the vice president, and they said, well, what would, what would the vice president do in this circumstance if he were the president now? And the advisor said, well, he'd, he'd call out Putin. You know, he'd tell him to stop. This struck me as an inadequate answer. Um, and, and of course, there are many options for a president in this case. What do you think an effective president would do having heard this news? I mean, yes, on the one hand, you know, calling out the strategic action is absolutely essential. But then there's a whole series of activities that you would be taking underneath that when a nation makes a decision to strategically go after your guys. And there are a whole bunch of things that we, the United States, could be doing to make Russia's life more difficult. We could be doing asset seizures. We could be going much more aggressively at the cyber actors that they use to get up on our networks. We could be going at, you know, pulling their people who are, you know, carrying the payments back and forth. We could be disrupting their networks. We could make their life very difficult. We could be supporting and bolstering the people inside of Russia who are calling for democracy, transparency, and an end to corruption in that country. We could be supporting our allies in Ukraine by providing them with the material they need to be able to fight for their independence. We could be seizing Russian property inside the United States um, that Obama had seized previously. There are a whole series of things that a president could do to make very clear their displeasure with Russia. We would not certainly be doing things like withdrawing from the Open Skies Treaty or right, withdrawing from the INF Treaty. We would be doing things to make their lives more difficult, to put more intelligence assets against what they are doing. Um, the, the answer is not to 
give Russia a free hand, but to get in their business. Yeah, clearly the thing the United States can do to punish Russia the most for this is elect Joe Biden um, and, and remove Donald Trump from office since he is giving them this kind of nonstop list of, of gifts and support. Um, Ryan, first of all, maybe you have some comment on what people have said, and then I'll leave it to you to ask the last round of questions here. Sure. Um, I was actually just going to use that a little bit of as a segue to throw it to Brett because of the connection to Biden. And you've worked with uh, Vice President Biden. So how would you describe his mode of operation, consumption of information, things like that? It doesn't have to be specific to Russia. It's like in crisis management, uh, what's what does one uh, think of him from your own experience being in, kind of in the room? So, yeah, I spent a lot of time um, with Biden in his role as vice president and a lot of diplomacy, leader engagements. Here's a key difference. I think Trump thinks that by having a personal relationship with Kim Jong-un or Xi Jinping or Putin, that somehow that means that those countries will act on our interests or that we'll you know, to, to, put, to, to put a kind of a, if you want to put some sympathetic gloss around Trump, which people try to do, which I, I can't do, but it's that. You know, hey, it's, it's worth having a good relationship. And he says it. We, we should get along with Russia. Yeah, sure, of course. Biden is very good at uh, one-to-one engagement. I've seen him with uh, some pretty prickly uh, senior leaders around the world. Um, but he is always focused on what is the purpose of this meeting? What am I trying to get out of it? And it's kind of the strategic empathy thing. Like, what I want to, I want to understand where this guy's coming from. I mean, he'll really push us. If you're working for Biden, where's this guy coming from? What are his politics? What are his constraints? What, do you, what is he thinking about? Um, and then how do we kind of think about using this meeting to advance what we're trying to advance in terms of our own national interests? Whereas Trump is trying to advance his own personal interests in these relationships. So, and that's just a, a key difference. I mean, Biden is very good at you know, personal one-to-one engagement. So I think he will definitely be engaged with Putin. He'll be engaged with Xi Jinping. Um, but the, the outcomes and the purpose of those engagements will be totally different. And he would be, just knowing him, I mean, totally prepared for every single uh, engagement. What Mark you know, the military call key leader engagement. You're going to have a key leader engagement. What's the purpose of this meeting? What do I need to know? What am I trying to get out of it? Whereas Trump just kind of gets on the phone with these guys uh, willy-nilly on the golf course and makes major strategic decisions. So I, it could not be more different. This choice that's teed up for the country, like you could not have a, a starker choice uh, between two individuals. And, um, you know, I hope the country makes the right choice. Um, Mark, I thought it'd be useful to drill down on the Russia bounty story with you, thinking about what confidence you think the intelligence community might have in this assessment based on some things that we see happening. So does it suggest to you that they do have a high level of confidence in the assessment, given that there was a change in U.S. force posture, um, given that we shared the information with uh, NATO and the U.K. so that they could change their force posture, posture and other elements? So there are two puzzles for me. Like one puzzle is, how does it make sense that it was only shared with NATO and the UK last week? Um, if indeed this is information that seems to have crystallized earlier than that with a CIA assessment, according to the Washington Post. I, I'm just, I do not know the answer to that 
puzzle. Um, and then the other one would be um, just last night, the New York Times had this extraordinary report about the Afghan security forces having tracked down a very particular person who is the middleman in the Russian bounty operation, uh, helping finance it and the rest of it. And it was a major operation, it sounded like, to go get him. And they had identified him, so they already had intelligence to know that this was the guy. And that operation takes place six months ago. <laughs> so is it? So then I think, well, do, do the British forces not know, and they're on the ground, that the Afghans are going after the middleman of this kind of a, an operation? Just to try to think through like what to make sense of um, the few bits of data we have to try to interpret it. I, I, I read the story last night too, and it, it really was a deja moment for me because it is, that is targeting. Uh, and it's been going on likely for a very long time, uh, ever since the first indicators were that, that there was a lot of money in a safe house that special operators found a long time ago. So as soon as you get that kind of in intelligence, you start driving to find more and more intelligence. And the reason I say it was deja vu is because it reminded me of things that happened in northern Iraq when I was there, when we first started seeing uh, explosively formed penetrators, EFPs, as part of uh, improvised explosive devices. We knew they were coming from Iran. We knew they were coming across the border into various uh, militia cells. Now, then the question becomes for the commander of how do you share that information that you have this deadly type of IED that can pierce through armor? How do you get your forces to understand that they have to mitigate those risks by the way they do the operations? And then how do you communicate that kind of intelligence to everyone who has a need to know? And in this case, when you're talking about northern Afghanistan, there are a lot of NATO forces in northern Afghanistan, the Germans, uh, the, the, well, not NATO, but the Georgians, others that would have needed that kind of information, especially the UK and, and, and others. So you share that information within the command structure. And again, going back to the first question you asked me is, who is helping you share it with the governments that may be supporting it? And that's where it drops off the cliff. I'm convinced the military which has been sharing this information for a very long time based on their intelligence. But the question becomes, going back to what Brat was saying, how do you do the demarche uh, through the State Department to the Russians? How do you say, we know you're doing this, knock it off, or really do the targeting of the individuals that are doing it? That's all at the tactical and operational level. Um, Mika, just we were talking before the pod began about the question of whether or not Congress has also uh, been informed of the matter um, before now. And Secretary Pompeo, in his uh, press conference this week, seemed to make some hay of that, uh, the idea that Congress was already aware. And I think that's probably going to be kind of the next front of the public messaging strategy from the White House that they knew too, um, something like that. Can you kind of say what you're thinking about uh, yeah, those sets I, of issues? Yeah, I, I think I understand, based on the reporting, obviously I, I'm not currently um, reading any intelligence or anything, um, but based on what's been reported, they said that the CIA had put the this their information about the Russian bounties in a product they call The Wire, which is a 
product that's sort of like um, they're, they're equivalent of a daily newspaper, right? Like that goes out to this sort of classified community about what the CIA is thinking and on hot topics on a given day. I mean, Congress does have access to that product. Um, and so there are people on the Hill who can read that product, but you have to go to a secure room in order to read that on a secure system. You can't, you know, when Congress is working from home, go in and like, you can't get that, uh, your home laptop, it's, that's just not secure. And so I don't know how much access they were actually getting, who was reading it, what, what they were able to transmit and how specific um, the information was. Um, but this is actually a fairly common tactic that we've seen in administrations um, to say, well, Congress knew and Congress approved, or Congress didn't do anything about it. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they did. And right, there are limited briefings that happen, like a gang of eight briefing, they'll say Congress knew, but they don't necessarily know, and they try and limit the distribution, and they limit what members of Congress can say or do about a thing. Um, but what really matters here is that this is the kind of strategic level decision by a foreign power that should have should have gotten you to a strategic response about what to do, not just about the force protection of the troops on the ground, which Pompeo was saying, oh, we've done everything right and we've dealt with it. They are not dealing with the strategic problem of a foreign adversary deciding to come at directly um, United States service members on the ground. Um, and that is really missing. And what, what I find striking about this was the, the layer, the political appointee response in the Trump administration for this. Because even Secretary Esper issued a statement over the weekend saying the Department of Defense has no corroborating information about this story. When we find out that, in fact, special operators in the Department of Defense had conducted a raid six months ago that had yielded a pile of cash as part of this. So it, it makes you doubt whether or not the Secretary of Defense is having a strategic level conversation as part of the National Security Council about what to do. Is he unaware of this kind of threat information that's happening? Is he signaling to his troops that he's not actually interested in holding Russia accountable, that he's more interested in doing what the president wants to do. This is very different than what you saw of the previous Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration, Secretary Mattis, who would have put the concern for the lives of the troops first before, you know, his honor was in, in serving with the men and women in uniform. It was not necessarily serving Trump um, as, as president. He serves the president. He obviously cared about that. Um, but I do think that there's something sort of very different there at the political level. Um, and at the end of the day, the operational response and the diplomatic response is first draft to the administration. So that Congress didn't do anything about it is, or that they weren't making somebody do something about it is, is not surprising. The first move goes to the president. Yeah, I, I got to add, I, I, she, Mika, you're totally right. And again, nobody in Congress is on the phone with Putin half a dozen times over the course of 100 days, President Trump is. So who is preparing him for those calls? Is the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense saying, again, hey, boss, uh, I saw on your schedule you're talking to Putin today. Keep in mind, we're running this down, and this could be pretty serious. Um, so that just doesn't really fly. I'm sorry. 
this is a an extraordinary case um in the best interpretation it's a catastrophic breakdown of process um but it seems likely to be more than that as brett said earlier it seems linked to a broader failure across the federal government uh which seems to be failing in many different areas it seems also to be linked to a series of decisions with regard to russia which again in the most charitable interpretation are suspect um this is a kind of a prism contains many crises uh and it links to a series of failings uh and crises that have occurred throughout this administration um i wrote something to that effect in the daily beast if you're interested you could go look at that um i feel very fortunate in times of crisis like this to be able to ask the questions that are on my mind as they are on your mind of really distinguished experts uh who've served the country in extraordinary ways um and i include of course in that list the four people who have been discussing it here today uh general mark hurtling Brett McGurk, uh, Mika Oyang, and of course, also Ryan Goodman, uh, who has been a, a, a terrific public servant. And I encourage you also to go to Just Security, where they have been doing some great work, not just reporting on this, but on other issues. Uh, we'll not be doing our regular broadcast on Monday in honor of the July 4th holiday. So we wish you a good holiday. Stay home and stay safe. Join us again next Thursday and every ensuing week as we follow up on this with panels like this. We hope this panel, uh, these folks will join us again sometime soon. Um, and uh, in the interim, um, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.